The Truth News Network. Fake news, circular logic, disinformation, outright lies. What do you do when the truth goes underground? Well, here, let me get that door for you. Welcome to TNN, the Truth News Network. And your host is Dan Newman. Well, something or somebody didn't want us to get cranking today, did they? Good morning, everybody. Welcome to TNN Live. I apologize for that little speed bump at the introduction of today's show. And maybe, just maybe, somebody out there doesn't want us uh, talking with you about the things we have to discuss today. I don't know. I mean, just when you think it's safe to come in out of the water, something else goes crazy. Electronics, internet, satellite. How many moving parts are there into producing a show? I'm directly involved with a bunch of them, but there are a whole bunch more elsewhere that I don't know anything about. But anyway, here we are on a Thursday, and we thought it was going to be a slow news week based upon the fact that the raid took place last week. You know what I'm talking about. But it's not slow. And every day, more and more and more information comes out And it's being kept um, not so much secret as time-released. Everything in politics, everything in Washington, D.C., good, bad, ugly, whatever it is, not only is it developed and a story written about it that is going to shine it in the best possible light to impact this administration and every Democrat. Not only is that true, the timing of releasing information or letting things happen is also very, very specific and planned. Jobs numbers are up, not much above uh, what it was a week ago and not nearly what it was expected to be. And of course, the victory laps are underway in Washington, D.C. in the White House if Joe's there or if he's in Delaware or somewhere else on the globe, victory laps are happening because We've put more people back to work than any other president. He doesn't say it that way. What he says, and the talking point, we have created more new jobs than any other president in American history. They're not new jobs, but never let the truth get in the way of a good political pundit perspective, right? So what other big things are happening? Well, I don't think what we're going to talk about right now actually happened yesterday, but it was released yesterday, a overhaul of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Not just kind of tweaking it, but Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, announced an overhaul of the CDC. The CDC will be going through a reorganization following criticism over the agency's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and other public health threats. CBS News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. John LaPook is here with me, and he spoke exclusively with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky about the changes. Today's report uncovered deep concerns over the CDC's culture and day-to-day practices. Among the complaints, 
a rigid compartmentalized bureaucracy that restricted the agency's overall response to the pandemic, from its analysis of data to the sluggish release of information to the public to its confusing and overwhelming COVID guidance. Was the agency up to the task of handling this pandemic? I think our public health infrastructure in the country was not up to the task of handling this pandemic. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky commissioned the report in April. We learned some hard lessons over the last three years, and as part of that, it's my responsibility, it's the agency's responsibility to learn from those lessons and do better. The new findings are likely to spark a major shakeup of the CDC's sprawling bureaucracy. Among the plans, get information to the public more rapidly, create a new office to promote equity in healthcare, and develop a more nimble workforce that can quickly respond to public health crises. We need to have a special forces, if you will, um, to deploy during pandemic times. Do you think they're up to the task of now changing their whole culture and thinking of themselves more like special forces that can be deployed wherever they're needed? I have no doubt that they're up to the task. The report comes with a new sense of urgency as the CDC moves from managing the pandemic to dealing with the latest public health crisis, monkeypox. Is it fair to say we're not quite there yet in terms of monkeypox? I think it's too early to say that we have our arms around it. I believe that we can work to contain this outbreak um, and we're doing a lot of that hard work. Dr. Walensky told me the CDC has to up its game when it comes to making the agency's workforce more nimble improving capabilities in the lab, and becoming better at gathering and reporting data. And Lana, because we don't know what the next public health challenge would be, we gotta, we got to get ready right now. Yeah, we know it's coming. We don't know what it is, but we know that it's coming. Sure. I have to just start off with the special forces idea. <laughs> Can you tell me more about that? This was something that I had never even thought of, but I've been covering the pandemic since the very beginning. Dr. Walensky said about 20% of the 13,000 people who work for the CDC um, are have been deployed to the pandemic. Now, I just thought, well, okay, they, they're working on the pandemic, but actually they're only there for months, a couple of months or maybe six months. And sometimes they, they don't leave and they, they sort of say, look, we're staying where we are. Uh, it's part of the culture that has to change to say, look, I know you joined the CDC and you're interested in this, but if there's an emergency, you may have to shift gears and deploy like special forces. You have to be trained and ready to go from this problem to that problem. Yes, you're dealing today with COVID, but you may be switched to monkeypox. This was an organization that started 76 years ago to fight malaria, and a lot has changed since then. So much has changed. And you and I were speaking before the segment about some of the challenges that the CDC has has chronically faced in terms of funding, and also now increased division, it seems like, in, in the country's perception of the oh, CDC. Absolutely. Well, I remember I did a 60-minute segment for Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, and we showed him walking along the river with his wife. He needed armed guards to be with him. I mean, I spoke to Dr. Michelle Williams, who's the head of public health for the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard, and she has a special button, a panic button in her in her office. So. We've never had this before. So this is a public health system that not only has been underfunded for many, many decades, but then we have the public pushing back on it right yeah. now. So given these roadblocks, how optimistic was Dr. Walensky about, and how optimistic are you about the ability of the CDC to make these changes? I think there are huge challenges ahead. I think one of the things that has to happen is better handling of data. So I did a Sunday morning piece on the public health system just a few weeks ago. And in the middle of the pandemic, right at the very beginning, 
there were orders coming from doctor's offices for COVID testing via fax. Hmm. I mean, I saw the fax machine. We have data systems, all kinds of different ones across the country, even though we've had the ability for decades to securely communicate with each other. There's no secure handshaking for many of them. It's a, just a mishmash of different systems. So the CDC has been criticized saying, how come you don't have the data? Well, they actually usually don't have the power to demand that these places send them data. During special emergencies like COVID, they can say, yes, they're empowered, you need to send us data. But even when they're empowered to do so, there's often not the data structures and the computers and the, the wires, the roadways to be able to make that efficient. So they've, they've got huge challenges. I do think Dr. Walensky is very serious. She, to me, she's very impressive in the way she's approaching this. And I have to hand it to her. You know, I said to her, you know, given everything that's happened with COVID and then there's monkeypox and now there's polio, why did you commission this report in the first place? And she said, look, we have to be honest about this. Hmm. I came, I wanted to do the job, and, and whatever whatever the advice is, that's something we have to take very seriously. You can't get better without owning up to yeah. your shortcomings. Yeah. I, have to hand her, I have to hand it to her for that. Definitely. Well, it's good to have you here, Dr. John LeCook. Thank you. Well, an overhaul of the CDC. Go figure. Probably the most salient comment in that whole piece was in the last 10 seconds. We have to tell the truth. We have to get facts. We have to give facts to the American people. There's a whole lot of missing factual things that happened during the pandemic that originated at the CDC. One thing that was left out of that report in its entirety was an estimate, maybe, of how many lives were lost needlessly because decisions were made during the pandemic based upon information given to us as factual by the CDC. Who was missing in this report? Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now I'm going to drop a little bomb of information on you right now. I promise you've not heard this, but this has been out since the very beginning of the pandemic, three months in. And it came from a group of doctors from the United Kingdom in Germany. And it came from and with information obtained through the CDC that was published on the CDC website. It has to do with Dr. Anthony Fauci. You remember the very beginning of the um, pandemic? We had all these deaths that were happening, happening unexplained up in New York. Doctors were going crazy. They couldn't get enough ventilators. That was the big sign. We can't get enough ventilators. All of that originated simply because they were told that you've got to get ventilators on these patients. They've got to get their blood oxygenated. That came from the CDC. Sadly, many people lost their lives needlessly during that time because doctors, hospitals across the nation were taking their marching orders from Dr. Anthony Fauci about that. What was it all about? Ventilators were pushing blood through the patient's lungs too quickly for the lungs to oxygenate the blood. 
what they needed instead of ventilators was oxygen in closed masks and oxygen. And of course, the whole industry very quietly changed to that. But in that very beginning stage, thousands of Americans lost their lives. We're not through yet. Who wrote who wrote the medical plan that every hospital in America had to use during the pandemic? The protocol at every hospital. Now, what does that mean? What are you talking about, Dan? If you've not been through this, you, you don't know how egregious this, this was. People were taking family members to emergency rooms. They weren't diagnosed as COVID-19 patients, but they had something else. They get taken to a floor, and all of a sudden, the diagnosis changes, and they're COVID-19 positive. The protocols written by Dr. Anthony Fauci regarding medication for these patients was for remdesivir, the drug remdesivir. Every hospital in America, when you went in with COVID-19 and it was a bad case, you were going to stay in the hospital, you were going to get remdesivir. Now, let me tell you a little bit about remdesivir, where it came from. It had been around for a long time, but it hadn't been used for SARS in any of the previous versions, but Dr. Fauci got involved with the company that owned remdesivir. And so they did two tests, or they they used two tests to present to the FDA remdesivir to be used to treat COVID-19. Nobody bothered to look at the details of those two laboratory tests. Each one was done with a very small group of people. They weren't controlled tests. But what happened, in one case, they ended the test because too many people that were in it died. And they died from one thing. And I'll tell you what that is in just a second. The other group, they kept going through the test, but 30% of the people in it died. Now, that were those were the two tests on which... Dr. Anthony Fauci forced through his power at the CDC and the NAIAD to force hospitals to use remdesivir in every patient. Guess what they were dying from? Kidney failure. Kidney failure. Doctors in these hospitals could not figure out, we've never seen this, Dr. Fauci. We're treating patients with remdesivir just like we're told to, and it can't keep up. The COVID-19 is killing all these people, causing kidney failure. It was remdesivir. And they knew about it from those two tests. Those two tests are still published on the CDC website. The test that told doctors do the exact opposite. Don't even think about using remdesivir. What about all this kind of stuff? Overhaul the CDC? Yeah. How about rolling some heads? How about charging some people with criminal charges for what they did that killed people during the pandemic? 
government, folks. Government. You heard that little bit in that in that audio bite they were talking about underfunded, CDC underfunded for decades. They're so important. They do so much good work. They probably do. But when politics got into it, people died because of politics getting into it and because of Dr. Anthony Fauci. I have good friends that were forced to take remdesivir when they were in the hospital and several of them have still not recovered and have been on the street for months. Remdesivir almost killed them and the people that did did not kill, they have permanent, in many cases, kidney issues. Doctors are not infallible. And the ones that act infallible are probably the least capable to do what they tell us they're going to do. And by the way, what they're licensed to do. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. I just look at right here in my own little community. I got a good friend, a really good friend, great guy, a few years older than me, golfing buddy. He also was a big fan of Louisiana Tech. We traveled in many cases to out-of-town football games. He got sick, goes to the emergency room. He wasn't there for anything, any kind of symptoms that even looked like COVID-19. In the ER, they tested him, tested positive for COVID-19. They take him upstairs to the COVID floor, and overnight, guess what happened? He got COVID-19. He was on the floor with nothing but COVID-19 patients. They put him on remdesivir. They put him on a ventilator 48 hours later, dead. You know what he died from? Kidney failure. Remdesivir killed him. Anthony Fauci hospital protocol for COVID-19 killed him. No apologies there. No accountability there. Our government killed thousands of Americans by bad diagnosis from Dr. Hack. What a way to start the show today, huh? Well, I get amped up when it comes to medicine because there are so many people that have used it through the years to scare Americans into submission, typically just for political reasons. And then overnight, we get from another agency, another one of those that consider themselves to be the end-all, say-all for health care on the globe, the WHO. They're urging caution today, folks. They have confirmed the very first case of human-to-dog Monkeypox transmission. Now let's get this straight. Now we're worried about people giving dogs monkeypox. Dr. Rosamund Lewis, technical lead on the monkeypox response team at the WHO, she said this case should be heeded as a warning to others 
This is the first case reported of human-to-animal transmission, she said. This has not been reported before, and we believe it's the first instance of a canine being infected. However, she continued, this has been a theoretical risk. You may see that a number of public health agencies have advised those who contract monkeypox to make every effort to isolate from their pets because of this hypothetical risk particularly in the household for domestic pets, but also risk of contamination of animals outside the home. For example, for those accessing garbage and things like that. So waste management is critical. Isolation is important. So let's just look a little further in this. Hold your laughter. (laughs) Dr. Mike Ryan, director of the WHO's Health Emergencies Program, said this, In this particular case, transmission to a dog in a closed domestic setting with one animal infected, it's not unusual. It's not unexpected, but what we don't want to see happen is disease moving from one species to the next and then remaining in that species and moving around within a new species because that's where the virus can adapt and then adapting to that new species, the virus is incentivized to evolve as such. News of the infection attracted some um, obviously new attention, and I'm holding back my laughter. After a report from France was published last week in the medical journal Lancet about an Italian greyhound that caught the virus while living with two gay guys in Paris. The two men were infected with monkeypox after having sex with other partners, wound up with lesions and other symptoms. The greyhound later developed lesions and was diagnosed with the virus. They told us from the very beginning, some of those same old experts at the CDC and the WHO, monkeypox, is transmitted through sexual contact. I don't even need to give you more details. I'll just leave it hanging out there in the air. (laughs) How about that? I got a text from James Comey with a very, uh, James Comey, James Posey. (laughs) I'm sorry, James. He said, I wonder how it was transferred from the human to the dog. Okay, let's go back to uh, other important issues. Have you heard what's happening up in the upper Midwest? In the first polls since the unprecedented Mar-a-Lago raid, Emerson College polling showed that J.D. Vance, the Trump-backed Republican nominee for Ohio's open U.S. Senate seat, and Republicans had overtaken Democrats across the board in the Buckeye State. J.D. Vance leads Ryan by three points in the most recent Emerson College poll. The poll found 45% of 925 general election voters would vote for J.D. Vance over the 42% who would vote for Ryan. Ryan is the Democrat that's a member of the House that wants to leave the House and take that open Senate seat. There were 4% who said somebody else, 10% are still undecided. In fact, When the voters were asked, regardless of who you support, 
which candidate do you expect to win? A majority, 52%, said Vance would win compared to the 48% for Ryan. This is interesting. This is showing more and more and more, probably greater than ever before in our lifetime, more American people are turning in and listening and watching the political fallout and what's been going on even while they slept and didn't pay attention, but it's changed their lives dramatically and they're engaging in the whole process of life rather than just benignly relying on other people to tell them what to do, how to do it, what they can do, what they can't do, making the rules, breaking the rules, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. People finally paying attention. And when you pay attention, if you have, and I'm not demeaning anybody, and I know we have some friendly Democrats that listen to this show, and I'll just make it very clear to you. I love you. I may disagree with some of the things you espouse. I know you disagree with some things, probably many things that I espouse as a conservative. I respect the fact that you have the right to think differently than I do. And I wish you would feel the same way about me. Most Democrats don't feel that way. If you disagree with them, they don't just say, hey, let's just agree to disagree and walk away. That's not what they do. They'll immediately put a cross on your head, X you out, demean you, call you incorrigible, you're evil just because you disagree with them. That's not everybody, but that's a lot of people. Americans are awakening. Americans are awakening. And another big sign that that's happening is what's going on now after Liz Cheney got her butt kicked in Wyoming, lost by 40 points in her primary, not the general election, in her primary. Harriet Hageman beat her. Where does Donald Trump fit in this? Liz Cheney hates Donald Trump. In fact, this weekend, on one of the uh, mainstream media talk shows on Sunday, Her closing statement was, I will do anything to keep Donald Trump out of the White House. Who would want to vote for somebody that would say that's her number one cause? What about that thing called leadership, leading the nation, working for the people you represented those years in Wyoming? holding down the only seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. There's only one. She let her hatred for Donald Trump cloud her ability to even lead the nation as it pertains to her state. It was all about the politicization of that Senate's uh, uh, House seat and the power that came along with it. But the most important thing was who her father was. Dick Cheney is her dad. Dick Cheney was the architect of both of the Iraq wars. The first one obviously was keyed when Iraq invaded Kuwait. That gave the Americans some, uh, some reason to go after Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Two presidential administrations later, Bush the Younger, Bush 43, George W. Bush, He went full bore into Iraq, led by Dick Cheney, 
Thousands of Americans died. Even more, numerous numbers more of Iraqis died, a lot of them civilians, in that war. And the calling card and the reason we were enlightened and given permission basically to go was there are weapons of mass destruction scattered across Iraq that Saddam Hussein is going to use on the free world. And then we went. There were no weapons of mass destruction. On the campaign trail, even before he made the presidency, Donald Trump talked about the Cheney's involvement in the Iraq war, and he called him out on it. And of course, Cheney wasn't in power. He was out of office, but his daughter was in the House of Representatives. So she just took it on to go after Donald Trump, and it was on. I didn't, I didn't give her loss percentage accurately to you. I said 40 points. It was only 37 points. What about the Donald Trump uh, victory tour of those 10 Republicans who voted to impeach him in the House of Representatives? It's hard for me to believe that two did, but two did, uh, excuse me, 10 did. Only two of them are still alive. Donald Trump has been actively campaigning against them in in their primaries, and only two have won. She was the last one to go down. America's paying attention. Americans are watching what's going on. We're not losing anything. We're focused now. Now let me just throw another little bomb at you. This one shocked me yesterday. President Biden reinstated, very quietly, reinstated the largest oil and gas lease sale in U.S. history. Essentially, steamrolling the need for environmental review. He signed it into law on Tuesday. What was it called? The Inflation Reduction Act. I'm not kidding. While that act includes several green energy provisions opposed by the fossil fuel industry, the bill also orders the Department of the Interior to take a series of steps to boost fossil fuel production on federal lands and water. Can you believe this is happening? Have you ever seen such a conundrum? He bows and kisses the feet of the climate change activist. And then on the other side, he's patting those big, evil American oil company CEOs on their backs and saying, I'm sorry for the temporary pause, buddy. You're back in business. The legislation requires the Department of Interior to reinstate lease sale 257, a massive offshore oil and gas sale that spans 80.8 million acres across the Gulf of Mexico. And they're supposed to have the sale within the next 27 days. There should be no questions about the issuance of leases from Gulf of Mexico lease sale 257. That's NOAA President Eric Milito He told Fox Business in a statement that Tuesday, the legislation is clear and it's mandatory. In November, they held up the lease sale 
And just to give you an example of dollars involved, that sale then would have generated more than $191 million in bids for 308 tracks from fossil fuel companies despite criticism from several prominent Democrat lawmakers and environmental groups. But a federal court blocked the sale in January, ruling in favor of a group led by Friends of the Earth and the Sierra Club. They argued the Biden administration failed to properly analyze the climate impacts of the sale. The Biden administration opted against appealing the court's decision in March. The American Petroleum Institute, a group representing a big segment of the fossil fuel industry, they stepped in and appealed on behalf of the companies that were involved in this sale. And that case remains in front of a federal appeals panel. So while reinstating this lease sale, it is a positive step forward for American energy leadership. As a whole, it falls well short of addressing America's long-term energy needs. That comes from a senior vice president of policy, economics, and regulatory affairs. The API, the API, American Energy, what is that? What is the American Petroleum Institute? The API and a couple of other industry groups penned a letter to House leadership last week urging them to reconsider the legislation. And they took particular issue with the corporate minimum tax, natural gas tax, and tax on crude oil included in the bill. In addition, several big-time Democrats who had come out very vocally against any new fossil fuel leasing on federal lands and waters, they voted in favor of the Inflation Reduction Act despite their criticism of lease sale 257. After this disastrous lease sale was rightfully revoked, the Biden administration had a clear choice to make. This is from House Natural Resources Committee Chairman Raul Grava, who's a Democrat from Arizona. He said that back in March, after the administration chose not to appeal the court ruling blocking the sale, would they appeal the decision and continue to defend the previous administration's climate denialism and massive giveaways to the fossil fuel industry, or would they accept the ruling following federal environment law and seize this rare opportunity to realign the Interior Department's offshore leasing program with climate science? Obviously, Joe saw the handwriting on the wall, and he quietly signed the bill, not even talking about the part of it that included lease sale 257. And now it looks like we're going to see fossil fuel production in the United States begin to slowly creep back up to previous levels. And maybe the price at the pump will continue to go down for us. And maybe, just maybe, we'll see an inflation downtick in the next month or so if we can get this oil and gas production underway, get some holes punched, and maybe get some oil flowing. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I tell you, who else is celebrating the Inflation Reduction Act? This is not in America. It's in Canada. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he went to social media celebrating Biden signing the bill, 
boasting that the American legislation is a big win for Canadians. It's official. At POTUS signed legislation that will include Canada in a new tax incentive for electric vehicles purchased in the U.S. This is good news for Canadians, for our green economy, and for our growing electric vehicle manufacturing section. With this law, the American people won, and the special interests lost, said Joe Biden. This administration began amid a dark time in America, a once-in-a-century pandemic, devastating joblessness, clear and present threats to democracy and the rule of law, doubts about America's future itself. And yet, he said, we've not wavered, we've not flinched, we've not given in. Man, when he stays on teleprompter, doesn't he sound like a great thinking, cognitive, right-on president? The Canadians say it's a windfall for their country and its green energy manufacturing sector, which will benefit from Americans receiving tax credits for buying these electric vehicles made in North America. That's a fact not lost on critics. Using your taxes to boost the Canadian auto manufacturing sector is not going to reduce inflation in the U.S., but it's quite a gift to Canada, the same country that said the U.S. and the World Trade Organization to get us to remove country of origin labels from our beef and our pork. That's Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky. And I guess you heard, Included in the bill is up to a $7,500 credit if you buy an American-made electric car. $7,500 direct tax credit. That sounds like a great idea. It's so great that the same day Ford Motor Company raised the price of their electric vehicles that fall under this bill. They raised the price $8,500. So you're $1,000 in the hole. (laughs) <laughs> but you get a $7,500 credit. You just got to get another 1000 out of your pocket. You cannot beat politicians in this game. It's their game. They wrote the rules. They tear the rules up regularly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Have you kept up with the talking heads in our government, the two at the top? Kamala Harris is vice president. Joe Biden is president. It's hard for me to keep up with what they say and what they do. I mean, they're all over the place when they speak, when they talk. You want an example today? Let me get you to do this. Go grab a Kleenex or something because you're about to laugh your butt off, and you may sneeze a few times and need it. We're going to let you listen to both, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but ladies first. A world in which substantial affiliated melodramatic dancing scenario citations and dubious deceivable mescal beans unimpaired by compunction excogitate at any impasse. Now, those last 18 words, I literally just picked at random from my beloved Roger's thesaurus. But even plucking words out of thin air makes more sense than anything the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, says on any topic whatsoever. 
we know that we really are quite behind in terms of maximizing our collective understanding about how we will engage on the technology of today and what we can quickly and easily predict will be the technology over the next decades. So to maintain our position as the United States of America on this issue, it is critical that we work together to understand where we are, to recognize and have the courage to speak truth about what is obsolete, and then to partner to ensure that we are speaking the same language with the same motivation, inspired by the opportunity of it all, but then doing the work of updating how we have been talking and thinking about our exploration in space. Utterly meaningless. The person who is only one heartbeat away from being leader of the free world. Any idea what she was talking about? Nor have I. But this is the sort of gobbledygook we get day in and day out from our politicians. Devoid of meaning, impossible to pin down and instantly forgettable. I wonder, was she reading that from a teleprompter? Certainly she was. And so that gives me this thought. Who the heck wrote that drivel that you just heard her give? And obviously she's in front of people in front of a microphone and she was it was on television. So there are a bunch of people that are listening to the number two in the government, the United States government, and she's talking about nothing, just going in circles, looking intelligent, maybe sounding intelligent. But I gotta be honest with you, I think she's not that intelligent. If you think that was bad, Wait till we come back from this break. Genuine Ford Parts and Service presents A Word From Your Wallet. Are we at the gas station? Yeah, I know. I'm feeling these gas prices too. I'm the wallet down here. Head to a Ford dealership. Why? Proper vehicle maintenance. A new air filter can save 19 cents a gallon. Correct tire inflation up to 6 cents a gallon. Wow, that sure adds up. (laughs) Fat wallets are very in right now. Right now, Motorcraft air filter replacement is just $19.95 or less. Replacing a dirty air filter can increase fuel economy by as much as 10%. Well, done. That was easy. Maybe you should listen to your wallet more often. Well, you're typically pretty quiet. Well, I didn't want to be a pain in the... Uh, 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 uh. Hurry in for the best deals we've had in years. Money-saving rebates on brakes, batteries, tires, and more. See your participating Ford dealer today. Shop at H&M. Be stylish. Be trendy with women's clothes and accessories at the best quality and the best prices since 1947. Come to H&M and shop for women's clothing and accessories inspired by the latest fashion trends. Here at H&M, the master of cheap fashion, clothes cost the average price of $21.40. Wow, that's so cheap and affordable. I know, right? H&M offers fashion and quality clothing at an affordable price. So, what are you waiting for? Come shop at H&M today! Hashtag Hot and Modern. Enrique Santos for Taco Bell. The toasted cheddar chalupa from Taco Bell is back, and I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking the same thing. Did they really toast six-month-old aged cheddar right onto a delicious flaky chalupa shell again? Yes, they did, but now it's even tastier. It comes with a crunchy taco, cinnamon twist, and a medium drink, all in a $5 box. That's right, all that for just a little cheddar. But don't forget, it's back for a limited time. The $5 Toasted Cheddar Chalupa Box, only at Taco Bell. 
Coming up in the next half hour, we have Tom Homan, former ICE director. He's the guy that he just always seems to be plugged in to what's really going on down at the southern border. And he gives us factual numbers from years of being in the job down there. And the information he's going to bring to you today, it's not good. We got that coming up. We also have some other economic news to talk to you about, but we're talking about the speaking ability of the President of the United States and the Vice President. These are the people that everybody around the globe watches and listens to, trying to draw conclusions on what's best for them based upon the successes that we see and they see of the leadership here in the United States. You heard the number two. Here's the number one, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Because you can't build a wall high enough to keep out a, 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 a vaccine. The vaccine can stop the spread of these diseases. If, you, if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to... And it get hot, I got a lot of, I got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by, go, you know the, you know the thing. So you go ahead and you stack spaghetti sauce at a store and in, in, in a supermarket. You control the guy or the woman who runs the, run, run brings out the carts on, 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 on a forklift. What happened? You cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. So for, I'm not joking. We choose science over fiction. We choose truth over facts. What a stupid son of a bitch. Justice, sorry, as a bug. <laughs> Speaking of the environment. That, that we deal with WHO the right way. That, that in fact, that's when things began to change. We need to work again with Canada and Mexico as neighbors, not as adversaries, as adversaries. I, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at it anyway. I, that's what I think my plan, I know what my plan does. made 200 million people have died, probably by the time I finish this talk. That's why I made it a priority my entire career to work closely with you. From the time I got to the Senate 180 years ago, <laughs> you know, as well as my tenure as vice president. Unnecessarily, now we have over 120 million dead from COVID. <laughs> hey, everyone. I'm Joe Biden's husband. <clears throat> well, you should vote for Trump. You should vote for Trump. Come on, man. How many push-ups you want to do here? China is going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. workers that are gun enthusiasts and you are actively trying to diminish our second amendment right and take away our guns. You're full of shit. Alright, thank you. Now, shush. Because we cannot get re-elect, we cannot win this re-election, excuse me, we can only re-elect Donald Trump. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. Why, 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 you're getting nervous, man. He gave me permission to touch him. By the way, this is my little sister, Valerie, and I'm Jill's husband. Oh, no, this is 
Switched on me. From 15 to 45 billion a year. Give every single teacher a raise to the equal raise of getting out the, the $60,000 level. When they disp- when they dis- they need to uh, and, and bring bring them. You're going about to meet if you haven't already. There's no doubt about them staying oiled and lubricated. You 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 just can't laugh at it. I mean, you would chuckle at the beginning of a, hearing a group of sound bites like this. But about maybe a quarter of the way through, you realize that's the president of the United States. That's the guy that sits atop the government of the most powerful country on the planet. That's being challenged right now by a couple of other countries, but nevertheless, the U.S. is still number one. How could the United States be number one with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris leading us. Think about the international ramifications. We're living through, we're struggling to keep our noses above water economically as Americans, middle-class Americans. The wealthy, they get their stuff. They don't mind paying a little bit more for their stuff. It's because they got so much money. Everything we look at in our lives, we make decisions and choices, and we draw observations and get facts from those on the way those things personally impact us. And when we look to the White House for leadership, when we look to the White House, any White House, for leadership, for answers, to help us with solutions, what we see when we look at this White House is an inept administration from the top to the bottom. We're going to get to the southern border on the Alejandro Mayorkas watch in just a moment that's even going to be worse than what you just heard. How, how can we Americans allow this to stand? There's no way to describe it. There's no way to explain it other than government is too powerful and is out of control and is no longer representing the American people. Our government's gone rogue. There's no other way to put it. And the only thing that we can do, the only bullet that we have in our gun, and somebody will make a big thing out of the fact that I said bullet and gun talking about politicians. Maybe in the back of my mind that was back there for some reason, but I didn't mean it for that purpose. Let's, let me rephrase that. The only arrow they have in their quiver is the power that they can get from you and me, seized from you and me, and we have no recourse against the people who work for us other than our votes. And for that reason, I point to the midterm elections coming up. No, it's not a presidential election. You may not have one of your U.S. senators in your state running for election or re-election, but that doesn't matter. Every member of the United States House of Representatives is facing an election in November. You have one of those that you can vote for, that you need to vote for. You need to bow up on what anybody that's running in those races thinks, and you need to make some educated choices and get your butt to the polls 
on election day and instead of sitting at home and griping about the price of groceries and the price of gasoline, get in the middle of this and help us all make a difference and get our government back under control. One of the most egregious things that because of the lack of leadership from this administration and the departments that fall under the executive branch, look at Portland, Oregon today. This is the saddest story. Residents in one Portland, Oregon neighborhood, they're having to sell their homes and moving out of that area because of homeless encampments right outside their front doors. And this is a middle-class neighborhood in Portland. It's a little scary because I know there is mental illness and that concerns me. That comes from resident Maria Enciani telling one local television station. Residents of North Portland said at least three families on one street have already left in recent days because of the homeless camps. And that TV station reported seeing for sale signs up and down the streets. I would say the migration to the suburbs I've seen quite a bit in the last two years. That's from one real estate broker. Most people don't want to have to worry about if they can leave their car parked in their driveway overnight without maybe having it broken into. It's a testy subject. This broker said she now studies neighborhoods to see if there are homeless camps in a given area while working with potential buyers. It's neighborhood by neighborhood. You can be driving through North Portland and you're in this lovely area where there's no issues and then you make a turn around the corner and have homeless camps there. It's sad. I've been doing this for 10 years, she said, and it's changed quite a bit here in Portland. Homeless encampments in downtown areas of cities and now out in residential areas. In Portland, homeless encampments along parts of the Peninsula Crossing Trail, which was once a popular bike path, have been there for years, but have grown in recent days, prompting residents in North Portland to call on the city for help. The community is at its wit's end. That's from a chair, Tom Korwaki, a chair of the Neighborhood Association. He said he hopes a city initiative called Safe Rest Village which would operate as an organized camp for the homeless and run by nonprofits is going to help clean up the area. See, you see the people of Portland, they're not much different than other Americans in other cities. They're willing to pitch in and help. They want to pitch in and help, but they're watching as the Portland city council does squat, except what did they do? What did Portland do to pour some, gasoline on this fire of homelessness in their city defunded the police they defunded the police it's not magic folks it's common sense and when those in our governments walk away from common sense and start making politicized decisions rather than common sense decisions for the people they govern, bad things happen, just like what's happening in Portland. Other bad things. I told you we were going to go to the southern border. 
the number of migrant encounters at our southern border this fiscal year so far, we're now up over 2 million, a number that marks a new record as well as a glaring sign of the enormous and ongoing crisis facing border agents. Customs and Border Protection announced Monday 199,976 migrant encounters in July alone, taking the total so far this fiscal year to just under, a couple of ticks under, 2 million encounters. Border Patrol sources said that since then, that number has now surpassed the 2 million mark, a milestone not hit before at the border. Last year, in a record-setting year, it was more than 1.7 million encounters. Agents had made approximately 1.2 million encounters at this time. The migrant crisis escalated about the time the Biden administration took office, jumping from about 72,000 encounters at the end of 2020 to 173,000 in just two months. The numbers have not come close to dipping below the 150,000 encounters a month mark since then. Tom Homan, former director of ICE down there, he's the guy when it comes to getting the facts out about why and what and what can be done. Here's Stuart Varney with Tom Homan. Border agents have made more than 1.8 million arrests so far this fiscal year. Tom Homan with me now. Tom, are we on track to hit 2 million border apprehensions by the end of September? And a secondary question, does that 2 million include gotaways? No, it doesn't. The actual number, uh, Stuart, we're over 2 million right now. So by the end of, uh, end of this fiscal year, it will be around 2.3, 2.4. Now, if you add the 1.7 from last year, we got well over 4 million since Joe Biden became president. And you're exactly right, gotaways. Right now, there is about 900,000 gotaways recorded on video, camera, drone, central traffic. So we know these exist. 900,000 gotaways at 50,000 a month average. So we're going to have a million gotaways by the end of fiscal year. So we're going to have 5 million, five million people enter the country illegally under Joe Biden since he become president. And we know the administration has released 1.7 million into the United States. We know that 1 million gotaways got into the United States. So this is 2.7 million people who enter the country illegally and are here. This is unprecedented. Never seen anything like it in my life. Uh, we know that streaming across the border, are they working? When they get here and they're distributed around various cities, do they just go to work? Some do. If you claim an asylum, you can, invite, you can apply for a work visa. And look, that's why they're coming. They're coming because they know, number one, they're not going to be detained. Number two, they can get a job. And number three, they're never leaving because the secretary has decapitated my agency, ICE. ICE can't arrest people for just being here illegally. The secretary's on record saying that. Being in the country illegally on its own is enough for ICE to make an arrest. So these people know they're not going to be detained. They, can, they go to New York City, they can get a driver's license, they can get a job. New York City helps pay their legal fees to fight the immigration case. And, and ICE can't remove them. Why the hell wouldn't you come to the greatest uh, uh, country on earth if you had those type of rules? Absolutely. I can see that entirely. I'd come, for heaven's sake. D these buses full of migrants arriving in New York from, from Texas. The governor of, Abba, uh, governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, uh, Greg Abbott, says there are more on the way. Do you think this is an effective PR strategy by Texas 
to bring a movement to move uh, 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 migrants to sanctuary cities? Looks good in a PR sense? Absolutely. Governor Abbott's making a lot of this, and I think more American people are paying attention to the crisis because of this. But look, Mayor Adams, they're coming to your city anyways. New York City ranks number one in the worst sanctuary cities. New York City ranks third in, in, in the illegal alien population. Again, New York City is a sanctuary city. There's only, you know, if, if an illegal alien commits a crime in New York City and gets convicted and goes to Rikers Island, he gets released back into the community to reoffend rather than turning them over to ICE. So they're protected from, from uh, being turned over to ICE. Again, they can get a driver's license, they can get legal help, a funds to fight the legal case. New York City is a sanctuary. So if, if Mayor Adams wants less people coming to New York, then end your sanctuary city policy, work with ICE to get rid of the, the criminal element, which you have a, a huge crime crisis there, that would help. And number two, call President Biden and tell him to close the border. And, and, and do his job, and you see less of this coming to New York City. Tom, I work in the city, and I live in New Jersey, and around here, the border is not an issue. It's not mentioned as an election issue particularly. I understand how it's a big deal in Texas, Arizona, maybe even California, but up here, Northeast, it's not a big election, election issue. You know that? Well, here's what, make, here's what makes it a huge issue. I don't care what anybody's uh, 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 opinion is on illegal immigration. This has caused 70% of border places to be taken off the line. And what has that resulted in? So far, they arrested 66 people on the FBI terrorism watch list. That's who they arrested. We know terrorists don't want to be arrested. They're trained how to evade law enforcement. We got 900,000 gotaways. Border patrols arrested people from 161 countries. Many of these countries sponsor terrorism. So if you don't think a single one of those 900,000 came from the country sponsored terrorism and entered the United States and got away to do this country harm, then they're ignorant to the facts. I don't care what anybody's opinion is on illegal immigration. This is a national security issue of huge proportions that I've never seen in my career. It scares the hell out of me, and, and it should scare the hell out of every American. Are terrorists coming across that border? I guarantee they are. We don't know how many, but someday we're going to find out. And New York City knows exactly what uh, a terrorism can do to that city. We do indeed. Tom Hohen, powerful stuff, and we appreciate it. Come and see us again. Thank you very much. Tom Hohen. You get some real numbers from Tom. That's why I like to um, hear him give these reports. And he just ran the numbers for us. Five million. Five million illegals are in our nation. Now, what does that mean on our resources, the ones that our country has? You know, the resources that come from taxpayers, and don't give me the line that a lot of these immigrants come here and go to work. They're going to work. They're here illegally, which means they cannot register. They can't get a social security number. So whoever their employers are, and most of them are construction companies in various parts of the country, big agriculture companies, and they're paying them by cash. And much of that cash is being sent back to the nations they come from. So yeah, they're getting work, but every job that goes to one of those 5 million immigrants, it came from a legal American citizen. Think about these things. You don't live in a, in a vacuum. None of us do. Everything's about everything. And here's another little bitty thing. America now has a 30 
billion legalized marijuana industry. $30 billion. And this just became legal a few years ago. Candy-themed products that are sold with minimal oversight through these cannabis stores around the nation increase the risk of addiction and psychosis among kids now. This is real. And a lot of this is being ramped up because of the illegal marijuana that's coming in and going into business against these legal dispensaries. Teenagers in states that have legalized cannabis use more of it or lured by colorfully packaged candy-like products that leave them vulnerable to higher rates of dependency, psychosis, school dropouts. Researchers are now warning it's just going crazy, the numbers. A DailyMail.com analysis now. We get a lot of news from over there, across the pond. Most of our news sites over here don't give this kind of information. Daily Mail got it. An analysis of research focusing on California, Massachusetts, Nevada, and other states that have legalized recreational pot. And that analysis shows experts warning of a potential explosion of underage use and more youngsters using it than in states where it's illegal. Now think about that. It should be the opposite. Legal stores in legal states are selling more of this than are being sold in states where it's illegal. They're alarmed by the weak oversight of a $30 billion business and warn of a free-for-all market in which super-strength cannabis products are sold in cartoon-covered packaging that attracts youngsters even as tobacco and alcohol firms are barred from targeting youth. Data from the 19 states that have permitted recreational pot this past decade, as well as the 38 states that allow medical use, indicates that teens and young adults there are using stronger products more often. Now, not every teen who eats a pot gummy sees their life unravel, but they're more prone to addiction and dependency than are adults, and greater availability and use means more cases of anxiety, depression, psychosis, and even suicide. In November, voters in Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, and Oklahoma are going to decide on whether to liberalize their own cannabis laws and let windfall pot industry taxes flow into state coffers. It's always follow the money. Follow the money. Cannabis use is more common among youth and adults in states where cannabis use is legal for recreational case. That comes from Renee Goodwin, who leads Columbia University's research. Legalization has moved from a social justice issue to the other extreme of big business commercialization. Without any of the same restrictions, that tobacco and alcohol now need to follow. Dailymail.com also spoke with parents in pot-permitting states, said their kids getting hooked on teen-friendly cannabis products, suffering physical and mental health problems, and messing up their education. 
One of them, Mary Mass, 57 years old, voted to legalize recreational cannabis in Washington back in 2012, Washington State, only to then see her son Adam spiral into a devastating addiction to super strength pot products worlds apart from the Woodstock weed that she recalls from back in the 60s. Another mom says she took her family out of Colorado once it became the ground zero for cannabis expansion. Another from Oregon has watched her 16-year-old daughter mess up school, turn to dealing, dealing drugs to finance her own addiction. And the evidence suggests these are not isolated examples. Goodwin's Columbia University study last month found cannabis use is much more common in states that have legalized pot and warn of a potential explosion of use among both adults and children. It used data from hundreds of thousands of respondents age 12 and above from the 2004 through 2017 National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Teens who smoke cigarettes are much more likely to track marijuana, she said. A separate study at Columbia from May found that vaping is the most popular method for youth to use pot. The share of high school seniors who vaped cannabis tripled from 5 to 14 percent from just 2017 to 2019. University of California San Diego researchers in May found that cannabis use grew among those aged 12 to 20 in California, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Maine, which legalized recreational use. And one more little thing. A University College London study in July found that adolescents are more vulnerable to marijuana addiction than are adults and just as likely to develop cannabis-related mental health problems as over-18s. Now, we told you last week, we brought you a story of what's happening in Northern California where some of these dispensaries are legalized. They're across small towns in Northern California. But the drug cartels from Mexico have come up to Northern California and set up shop. And they're growing weed, manufacturing weed and selling it, and it's much more powerful than the cannabis that's being sold legally. And that industry, now the illegal drug sales and use in Northern California, has gone through the roof. Now, I've got six grandchildren, two girls and four boys. The two oldest are boys, and they've graduated from high school, and they've moved on. We have one boy and twin girls that are going into their, well, they're now in their junior year in high school, and we have one that's in middle school. They all went to and go to the same Christian school, but it's not insulated from cannabis. These kids, I don't care where they live. I don't care what schools they go to. They're learning about and they're being introduced to marijuana. It usually, in many cases, comes through vaping, which seems innocent. Hey, if they're vaping, they're not smoking cigarettes. They're not going to get cancer. That's what I heard for a long time. Then we find out the same stuff, the carcinogenics, 
or in vaping that are in tobacco, regular old cigarettes and cigars, Swisher Sweets when I was a kid, a teenager. This is really getting out of hand, and what nobody in the Biden administration wants to talk about, it's really out of hand on their watch. It's getting bad, and it's getting much worse and doing so quickly, principally because of what is coming in at our southern border. And it's not just marijuana we're finding at the southern border in tons. It's other illegal drugs, and we've talked here extensively about fentanyl. Fentanyl, it seems like every month or two, enough in one haul of fentanyl, illegal fentanyl, comes again sufficient in content to kill every American in the United States. And this administration not only does nothing, they're suborning it by just keeping the border gates open. Come on in. Real truth, real news, TNN, the Truth News Network. New home ownership can be a real eye-opener, but it's the perfect time to look into Homeowner 101 from The Home Depot. Free live streaming workshops taught by expert associates. Now at homedepot.com slash workshops. You'll find indoor and outdoor workshops, even home systems workshops. Plus, you'll get the know-how you need to care for your biggest investment. Master the basics at Homeowner 101, only at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Register now at homedepot.com slash workshops. Are you ready for best life minus the burnout? I'm Zuri Hall from NBC's Access Hollywood, and my new podcast, Hot Happy Mess, is all about the most important VIP, you. Join us each Monday as we discuss relationships, self-care, career, and much more. Our podcast is for mindful, ambitious, diverse millennial women who are ready for more happiness, laughter, peace, and purpose now. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, and it's easy to see why. Listen to Hot Happy Mess every week on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jack, founder of Jack in the Box. Is the caller there? Mr. Box, Douglas Gompertz from Burger Week magazine. Oh, hey, Doug. Doug's a respected fast food critic. I recently dined on your sourdough Jack combo. And? Perfection. The cheese, the jumbo patty, the golden sourdough bread, the french fries. Bravo. Well, thank you. However, I found the dessert a bit dry. It doesn't come with dessert. The candy. The white, round candy with the happy face. Was it wearing a scarf? Yes, I believe it was. Rosy cheeks, fuzzy earmuffs? Yes, that's it. Douglas, you ate a holiday ball. <gasps> We're giving one away free to customers who buy a sourdough jack combo. But they're not for dessert. They're for antennas. Or a pencil. Right. Well, that's going to improve your score dramatically. Excellent. Too much spin on your plate? How about a diet of truth? The Truth News Network sets your table. And here again to serve it up is Dan Newman. Hadn't talked about Mar-a-Lago today and the raid last week by the Department of Justice, FBI. All the questions that remain in the air with no answers coming, a big hearing being held in Florida sometime later today. And the hearing is on whether to make public the probable cause affidavit that was used to justify the FBI's raid of Mar-a-Lago last week. Now, the, the hearing is in response to several media outlets. This is interesting. They jumped in this, and they want to see all the facts. These outlets are asking the court to make the affidavit public to understand the reasoning for the raid. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, he greenlit the original search warrant on August 5th. He is slated to preside over this hearing, 
although it's unclear whether he'll make a decision from the bench or take the case under advisement. And he, by the way, is a in-the-tank Barack Obama fan. The hearing comes as political tensions have just ramped up since news of the raid on Mar-a-Lago first broke last week. All kinds of uh, allegations are flying. I mean, everybody is screaming and hollering at each other on opposite sides of the room. We got to get to the truth. It will be a rare thing if this affidavit is released to the public. It normally doesn't happen. It's usually released, but only after there's a trial that's over. The case is done, and then they'll release the whole uh, group of documents that are in that court case. But maybe because this is the first time this has happened to a president where the FBI has raided a former president, especially with the guy that's sitting in the White House, if he decides to run for re-election and the Democrats approve him to run, he could be going up against Donald Trump and this administration that belongs to Joe Biden, the sitting president, would be trying to, through political haranguing, get their chief candidate that will be opposing them thrown in jail. That's an interesting one. Well, I've got a little news that may throw a kink in that whole thing. This is all coming from the National Archives and their law that they got passed that gives them authority over all presidential documents and things after any president leaves office. They basically control all that stuff. Well, there's a previous case on this that may make a difference in this one. A decades-old case over audio tapes that Bill Clinton once kept in his sock drawer may have a big impact over the FBI search of Melania Trump's closet in Donald Trump's office. The case in the past is titled Judicial Watch versus National Archives and Records Administration. It involved an effort by the conservative watchdog, that's Judicial Watch, to make the archives forcibly seize hours of audio recordings that Clinton made during his presidency with historian Taylor Branch. So for those of you that were part of the pop culture, the case is most memorable for the revelation that the 42nd president for a time stored the audio tapes in his sock drawer at the White House. The tapes became the focal point of a 2009 book that Branch wrote. The judge in that case, U.S. District Judge Amy Berman in Washington, D.C., ultimately rejected the suit by Judicial Watch by concluding there is no provision in the Presidential Records Act to force the National Archives to seize records from a former president. But the judge's ruling, along with the Justice Department's arguments that preceded it, made some other sweeping declarations that have more direct relevance to the FBI's decision to seize handwritten notes and files that Trump took with him to Mar-a-Lago. The most relevant one is this, a president's discretion on what are personal versus official records is far-reaching and solely belongs to the president as is his ability to declassify or destroy records 
at will. We're getting this from a federal court, folks. This is one step, just one step below the Supreme Court. There's meat on this bone. Here's what Judge Jackson wrote. Under the statutory scheme established by the PRA, the decision to segregate personal materials from presidential records is made by the president during the president's term and in his sole discretion. Now, she wrote that in her March 2012 decision, and it was never appealed. It's interesting. And she continued, since the president is completely entrusted with the management and even the disposal of presidential records during his time in office, it would be difficult for this court to conclude that Congress intended that he would have less authority to do what he pleases with what he considers to be his personal records, she added. The judge noted a president could destroy any record he wanted during his tenure, and his only responsibility is to inform the archives. As to whether records a president concluded were personal can be forcibly seized after he leaves office, the court concluded it was unreasonable to fuss NARA, the National Archive of Records, to go get the tapes. Because the audio tapes are not physically in the government's possession, defendant submits it would be required to seize them directly from President Clinton in order to assume custody and control over them. Defendant considers this to be an extraordinary request that is unfounded, contrary to the PRA's expressed terms, and contrary to traditional principles of administrative law. And the court agrees. That defendant was the same Justice Department that authorized the raid on Trump's estate. That's a very interesting thing to come out. And once again, it confirms the power of whoever's sitting in the White House over all documents that come through his or her hands, their treatment, their classification, and what his or her responsibility is regarding those that are even personal documents created while they're in office. It's going to be fun to watch how this plays out today. I will bet you this judge will not release the affidavit for the general public to see, and they'll come up with some kind of reason there's an ongoing investigation and releasing this would spoil or it would make a major impact on that ongoing investigation so we can't release it. They don't want any more information getting out that makes the Department of Justice and the FBI look worse than they already look over this. And this is all for one purpose and one purpose only. It's to try to keep Trump from running for office. Do you think he's going to run? I don't think there's anything out there, but maybe being behind bars that would stop him from running. I personally, without any hesitation, I believe Donald Trump will be the 47th president of the United States. Could this investigation possibly stop Donald Trump from running in 2024? Uh, no, only an act of God will stop him from running. Mm. It's only uh, uh, poor health. Look, he's going to run uh, just because he's ornery. But you know, the really interesting thing, Nick, is this. 
if he does win a run, and he will win if he runs, he's only allowed one term. He can't go two terms because the Constitution uh, limits him to two terms in office. He's already had one. So he'd be a lame duck president the day he got into office. So that's a whole nother story. I mean, the issue there would be who would be his vice president and all the rest of it. Uh, but look, uh, this is incredibly high drama. Uh, no one raids the home of a, a president. Uh, unless you have a good reason. And then when you get there and find out it's not a really very good reason. And this idea that he holds nuclear weapons material. Look, when a president leaves the office, his menus become classified information, everything. And whether it's secret, uh, top secret, or classified, or, or confidential. And that has to be declassified by the National Archivist. But for the archivist to go running to the uh, the Department of Justice and say there is a document missing. There's some documents seem to be missing or there seems to be something wrong based on an informant. So the FBI rolled this entire project out based on the testimony of an informant. And I, I wouldn't doubt if it's not a disgruntled member of the Trump family who got shaked or shaken the wrong way or whatever it is. But uh, it's incredibly high drama in the United States and it's setting the parameters for the next election. Um, and the Democrats, for their part, they only have 12 weeks to indict this guy on something to turn the 2022 20, uh, elections around the midterms. But yeah. uh, And I think Donald Trump is well on his way to uh, becoming the 47th president of the United States. So, see, he agrees with me on that one. I think it's a given. Well, what about all the dirt that looks like it was in the documents that were seized and what, why they were seizing the documents. What about all that? If there's any criminal activity by Joe, uh, Joe Biden, by Donald Trump and that, that will keep him from being the president. It won't, folks. If he wants to run, he will be able to run for president. None of this is going to stick. The Constitution has the sole authority to determine what has to happen for anybody that runs for president. And there is no prohibition in the Constitution, the very explicit requirements for anybody that can be president does not include any prohibition for being convicted of anything. I'm telling you this, a convicted criminal is eligible to run for president of the United States if he or she meets the other requirements that are laid out in the Constitution. And by the way, anything Congress has passed, it is superseded by what the Constitution says on any of that. Boy, Democrats don't like to hear that, but that's facts, folks. That's not Dan saying something. That's factual. That's the way it is. And it doesn't matter what we want or what we don't want. That's not going to change the law. There's other news out this morning about this whole debacle, Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump is talking about releasing the footage, the security footage that he has in his own facility. He's talking about releasing it to the general public. CNN even reported this morning, anonymous Trump allies and people close to Trump who encouraged the president to release the footage. Speculation about what he'll do with it. 
continues to build. Trump confirmed on social media the FBI demanded all of the security cameras be turned off during the raid, but they didn't stay off. What's this all about, he asked. Who said no? Eric Trump told Fox News host Sean Hannity on Monday they were going to release the footage at the right time. I mean, today would be the right time with me. The sooner the better. Trump's attorney, Christina Bob, suggested that Trump's likely had the opportunity to watch the footage from New York. They were actually able to see the whole thing. They actually have a better idea of what took place inside, she said. She also said security cameras were initially turned off, but that they turned them back on after a short period of time. As Trump's public information campaign about the FBI raid continues, he likely realizes he is still holding a major card in his hand. It's unclear exactly what kind of FBI activity the Trumps were able to capture on camera. Footage of them rummaging around in his office reportedly through his wife Melania Trump's wardrobe would play endlessly on cable news as Justice Department continues struggling to defend the raid as essential to national security. You can't make this stuff up. Let me tell you this about Donald Trump. Why do you think this story was leaked today? Why do you think? Well, they're going to have that hearing after a while with the judge. And the judge now knows (laughs) Donald Trump has surveillance footage of the entire raid And if he doesn't release this affidavit, they're going to release this footage to the American people. And the DOJ is looking really bad already. Whatever is on that tape, I guarantee you, it's going to make them look worse. He's not going to want that out. So he's got got himself a conundrum. It's very unusual to release affidavit information for warrants before a trial. It's done in the past, but very, very seldom is it done. This is probably going to be one of those very, very seldom cases. Now, speaking about mar Largo in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, he's come up with an idea to help the teacher shortage in Florida public schools. He's invited retired military vets and first responders to sign up to be teachers as part of a proposal to help the state's teacher shortage. You got to have a bachelor's degree right now to teach in Florida, but thanks to changes that are proposed by the governor yesterday, this would no longer be the case for eligible military vets and first responders. If you served in the military for at least four years, were honorably discharged, have taken 60 college credits, and passed a subject area exam, we want you to be able to teach Florida students, he said, in a video posted on Tuesday. Our veterans have a wealth of knowledge and experience that they can bring to bear in the classroom. And with this innovative approach, they'll be able to do so for five years with a temporary certification as they work toward their degree. And so it's not likely military vets with no education-related qualifications would suddenly be entering the classroom. They'd have to prove themselves. 
with at least some education, roughly an associate's degree worth, and subject matter expertise. The irony, you know where it's coming from, the unions, the teacher unions. The irony is that the left's response to this proposal tells you everything you need to know about their own clear-cut lack of meaningful education. Let me just give you a few tweets. How about hiring actual unemployed teachers? You know, the ones who are qualified for the job. Another one. Why stop there? Why not just let them be doctors, pilots, and judges? I mean, who needs bachelors in education? Florida's doing its best to stay dumb. If a veteran wants to be a teacher, that's great. They can use their GI school grant to go get an education degree. And those veterans that want to teach probably already teach. Otherwise, they are more no more qualified than the milkman. You going to pay them more? Another one. As a Florida homeowner whose homeowner's taxes fund public schools, hiring unqualified people to teach is unacceptable. How many vets will be teaching on DeSantis' children's private school? And the final one. So being a veteran means you can teach chemistry, physics. By being a veteran, you understand pedagogy, psychology. Veterans know how to use smart boards and quiz it. It's a ridiculous notion that's insulting to educators. What about the kids? What about the kids that are getting inundated every day, even though they say it's not out there, critical race theory is out there, racism is out there, homosexuality is out there. It's all being taught in schools. I think having these vets and first responders in schools would help the whole situation and would also send a message that politicization and union of teachers is not going to stand and it's not going to change the flow of education in Florida. Notice how all of these critics have automatically assumed that DeSantis would, if the proposal makes it through the Florida legislature, accept any and all veterans who want to teach, even if they possess no relevant qualifications. Apparently, reading, listening, comprehension isn't a strong suit for the left. The even greater irony is that many so-called educated teachers are woke know-nothings. Time Magazine documented a perfect example of this phenomenon last week. They drew attention to Oakland, California, where students used to perform well in reading thanks to a focus on phonics-based reading. As a teacher in Oakland, Kareem Weaver helped struggling fourth and fifth grade kids learn to read. How? He used a very structured, phonics-based reading curriculum called Open Court. The problem was the educated teachers thought they knew better. It worked for the students, but not so much for the teachers. For seven years in a row, Oakland was the fastest-gaining urban district in California for reading, and we hated it, Weaver said. And so the woke teachers sought change the way reading is taught by making it woke And sadly, their plot was successful. As a result, students suffered to the point that these days only 19% of black Oakland students can read. Continuing his remarks that were in a video posted Tuesday, Governor DeSantis argued it makes perfect sense to bring veterans on to teach. Every morning, our students recite the pledge, 
while looking at the Star Spangled Banner. It's fitting that the teacher in the classroom is somebody who took an oath and put his or her life on the line to serve, protect, and defend our flag and the freedom it represents. From devil dogs to salty dogs and dough boys to fly boys, we respect our veterans and know that they have a lot to offer. In a separate meeting that he attended, the governor again stressed that people who have served our communities have an awful lot to offer us. We've got people that have served 20 years and in law enforcement, they retire, some of them looking still for the kind of next chapter in their life. They're not going to just sit around on their hands. They want to do something. So we want and we need to provide a pathway. We want to incentivize them being able to help. And it kind of is a lanyap. And from Louisiana, what lanyap is, it's like that 13th donut. When you buy a dozen donuts, it's something you get extra. DeSantis has proposed a $4,000 bonus to retired law enforcement and first responders to get involved with this. I think you're going to see this happen. Maybe a scaled-down version, but I believe you're going to see it happen. Now, contrast that to this story. U.S. Representative Jamal Bowman, he's a Democrat from New York, he once was part of a conversation where it was argued that looking at rising crime statistics was hysteria and that the numbers had to be considered in context. Now, as the freshman term of this representative who ran on defunding the police is nearly over, demands to cut $1 billion from the New York City Police Department have come back around to paint a clear picture. Just two years ago, Bowman was elected to Congress and he represents the 16th Congressional District of New York. That includes the northern portions of the Bronx, along with the southernmost portion of Westchester County. His unapologetic stance on defunding the police and other radical progressive policies, it led him and fellow freshman U.S. Rep. Corey Bush of Missouri being labeled part of the squad alongside U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The former middle school principal's rhetoric leading into his election included his support of slashing the NYPD budget by about 20%. He wrote, I stand with the movement demanding a real $1 billion cut to the New York Police Department and reallocating resources to public health and the social safety net. We don't need to hire more cops. Let's keep building power and organizing to transform our communities. It all sounds good. Even before the death of George Floyd rekindled claws to defund the police as Black Lives Matter protests sprouted across the nation, Bowman was an avid proponent of hampering the capabilities of law enforcement officers. It's time to disarm the police, he tweeted in 2019. Then Mayor de Blasio had already cut the NYPD budget roughly 7%, about $382 million for fiscal year 2021. That was less than half of what Bowman wanted. Ramifications have been staggering. The NYPD precincts within his district, numbers 45, 47, and 50, have seen the combined total of 3,400 violent crimes as of August 8th. That's up 
roughly 30% from the same time last year when there had been 2,600 violent crimes reported. We're seeing these headlines about percentage increases. AOC had said during a conversation with Bowman in June last year, now I want to say that any amount of harm is unacceptable and too much. But I also want to make sure that this hysteria, you know, that this doesn't drive a hysteria that we look at these numbers in context so that we can make responsible decisions about what to allocate to that context. It's true, crimes were already on the rise at the time. But since then, Precinct 50 alone had a 74% increase in crime from last year. A system this cruel and inhumane can't be reformed. Defund the police and defund the system that's terrorizing our communities. That's from Bowman himself. I got to be honest with you. Americans are waking up to the crime problem and they're looking and seeing the actual reasons for this crime ramp up in their communities, in their cities, their towns, their neighborhoods. And they see their government not doing anything about it. I'm not talking about necessarily places like Chicago. Chicago's got its own problems, big problems. And I don't know that they're going to get any better. But every community, every city, every town, every village needs to understand one thing. You got to abide by the laws that are passed legally by the lawmakers in your community. Whether it's the federal government, which would be the House of Representatives and the Senate, your state representatives, state Senate, with your governor signing off on those, and then your counties or parishes, and then your cities or towns. Those people are endowed constitutionally to make the laws to govern those localities. They got to be passed. They've got to be held accountable, lawbreakers, and there've got to be significant penalties. If you just slap somebody on the wrist, it's just like when you were a kid. If mom told you to don't do something and you went and did it, if she just tapped you on the back of your hand and said, don't do it again, what are you going to do? You're going to do it again if that's what you want to do. But the first time mom grabs a stick or has a paddle at the house and wears you out, she's got your attention. You can bet your bippy. You're not going to go back and do the same thing that you got the beating for. Uncertain about what you see and hear in mainstream media? Worried about getting the truth? No worries anymore. Get the truth, only the truth, at TNN, the Truth News Network, at truthnewsnet.org. Howdy, the streamer here. You know, there's a place down yonder where three streams converge into one. It's where I saw the Mandalorian get himself into a space squabble. Watch me some UFC. Those folks from Modern Family had me cackling like a trout getting tickled. Well, that's a Disney bundle for you. It lets you stream Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus for only $13.99 a month. The Disney bundle. It's streaming at its best. Includes Hulu ad-supported plan. Access content from each service separately. Terms apply. Visit thedisneybundle.com for details. Few things bring as much joy as the delicious taste of Coca-Cola. Like your first time camping or falling in love on a blind date. And now, our new Coke bottles are sip-sized and made from 100% recycled materials. So every bottle can live on to create more memories. That's endlessly refreshing. Coca-Cola. Bottles are made from 100% recycled materials, excluding cap and label. 
Enjoy the great taste of Coca-Cola in a new sip-sized bottle that's made of 100% recycled materials. When Bolshevik Barbie throws shade, you have the weapon of light. The truth. DNA. Who's Bolshevik Barbie? Somebody know that answer? Give me a, give me a a, a ding ding at on text three one eight four seven zero two eight seven nine. I've heard Pete Moss use that over and over again through the last couple of years. Bolshevik Barbie three one eight four seven zero two eight seven nine. Let's look at financial stuff going on. We hear all this talk about the Federal Reserve. And they do this, and they don't do this, and because they didn't do that, it's making inflation worse. We hear all of that. Well, the Federal Reserve, they announced this week that they're they're going to keep raising interest rates after they are seeing little evidence that inflation is easing, and they predict it's going to remain high for some time. They had their meeting on Wednesday. Minutes from the Wednesday meeting showed policymakers are committed to raise rates, and they don't talk about specific numbers, but they said as high as necessary to bring inflation under control and acknowledge they would have accepted lower economic growth for that to happen. No doubt inflation's running hot, remained near a 40-year high at 8.5% in July, despite a rapid series of jumbo interest hikes that have taken the Fed's policy rate from near zero to two and a half percent. The minutes from that policy meeting did not hint at a particular pace of future interest rate increases for future meetings, including the next one scheduled for late September. Fed policymakers noted in the minutes lower growth could set the stage for inflation to gradually fall to the central bank's 2% annual goal though they acknowledged it remained far above that target. But they made it clear that for now, they intend to continue raising rates enough to slow our economy. Everything is about everything. You can't just look at our economy and cherry pick what you want to talk about. And if we would only change this, if you change this, it's tied directly to this and that and those. It's just a daisy chain of people and institutions that are involved in all this. I got to be honest with you. If you don't understand it all, it doesn't mean that you're stupid. Not at all. It doesn't. Let Let me just give you a way to understand what the Federal Reserve is. They basically are a independent institution. They don't answer to the president. They don't answer to the United States Congress. But they're one of the most powerful institutions on the planet. And this bugs a lot of people, including me. The Federal Reserve does two things. They control the interest rate. And the interest rate that they control is the rate that they lend money or banks lend money to other banks. The Federal Reserve Bank's lend money to banks for them to lend to borrowers and those rates are controlled and it is a historical fact in the middle of inflation if the Federal Reserve increases 
the lending rates. It tends to slow down the economy that's just exploded with successful operations. It's got to stay in balance. It's hard to grasp. I'm trying to give you the understanding of what the Federal Reserve actually does. Now, when the federal government spends money that it does not have, where does our federal government go to borrow money? They're getting it from somewhere. They don't have it down in the closet of the White House, and they just go down and grasp a a bundle of $100 bills and take it and give it to businesses and industries. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. What the Federal Reserve does is they try to keep inflation at a steady 2% mark year after year after year. That's good growth. That's justifiable growth. And every person, every market, every business, every bank, everybody lives under the same rules in that regard. And we can en masse gradually by raising interest rates, slowing down our economy, bring inflation down. It's a process and it takes time. It takes time to get into an inflationary cycle, which we're in, pretty bad one. It's going to take time to get out of it. On the metric that matters most, federal officials, at least as of late July, had registered very little progress in this cycle they're trying to make work. Participants agreed there was little to no evidence to date that inflation pressures were going down. Participants remarked it would be likely that it would take some time for inflation to move down to the committee's objective. Some inflation reduction might come through improving global supply chains or drops in the prices of fuel and other commodities, Some of the heavy heavy lifting would also have to come by imposing higher borrowing costs on households and banks. They're basically saying everything's on the table and they want to take control. Just one thing to point out here, another example of our government entity and entities and institutions wanting to take as much control as they possibly can. Speaking of big dollars, have you heard about LeBron James's new deal? James and the Los Angeles Lakers, they have now agreed to a two-year contract extension. Laker fans are going to be ecstatic. How much is it worth? $97.1 million, a two-year deal. That's $45.5 million, isn't it? No, it's not. $97 million. It's a lot of money. The deal includes a player option for the 2024-2025 season. It makes LeBron the NBA's highest paid player ever with $532 million in guaranteed money. Kevin Durant previously held that number with $509 million in guaranteed contracts. The four-time NBA champ, we're talking about LeBron James, can choose to become a free agent in 2024, or he can wait till the next year to sign with whichever team drafts his 17-year-old son, Bronny. 
who is expected to enter the league that season. James has repeatedly expressed a desire to play alongside Bronny, who is entering his senior year at L.A. Sierra Canyon School. The deal also includes a 15% trade kicker, meaning James is unlikely to be moved before the deal expires. Furthermore, he's actually ineligible to be traded during this upcoming season per NBA rules because the second season of his new deal includes a raise of greater than 5%. Lakers spokespeople didn't immediately respond to a request for more information. ESPN's Adrian Wodnowski was the first to report it. The deal could be worth as much as $111 million over just two years, depending on the fluctuating NBA salary cap. It's a bunch of money. I can't even fathom that. LeBron James, would he would pay them to let him pay in the league. That's how much he loves basketball. And so there's a story floating around now that is not uh, as positive as is that about Le- LeBron James. It pays to be rich. We know that. Americans' wealthiest people, including the likes of Tom Brady, Khloe Kardashian, Reese Witherspoon, Kanye, Nancy Pelosi's husband, each of them took millions of dollars, millions, in those paycheck protection plan loans. And nearly all of those, they took the, all that money, all of it, almost all of it's been forgiven. They don't have to pay it back. So, for the first time, exact amounts are coming out that these wealthy companies got through the PPP program, which was set up for desperate businesses hit by the COVID pandemic. In all but two of the cases that were looked at, the company was forgiven despite the star owners being multimillionaires. The status of the others is unknown. Now, this loan program, PPP, cost U.S. taxpayers $953 billion, with the University of Texas estimating that 15% of the claims, about $76 billion, were fraud. It was claimed that after the first round of the loans, up to 90% of ethnic minority business owners were unsuccessful at getting the loan and were at the end of the line. That was according to an Associated Press survey, which showed a disproportionate amount of white people in rich areas being approved for a loan. Yet celebrities in their businesses had no problem. Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law, net worth $800 million. He got a $3 million $1,119 PPP loan. It's been forgiven. Kanye West, he's worth $2 billion. He got a $2.3 million check. His is still pending, as is Jay-Z. Diddy's. Was, his was forgiven. P. Diddy's was forgiven. $1.929,252. Almost $2 million. His was forgiven. Paul Pelosi. He got a million seven forgiven. Chloe Kardashian, a million two hundred forty-five thousand forgiven. Jeff Koons, a million ninety-one thousand two hundred dollars forgiven. Reese Witherspoon, the actress, 
$975,000 forgiven. And Tom Brady, he got $960,855 forgiven. Sometimes these uh, money bonanzas, they're supposed to be bonanzas by a federal government. They sound good. And of course, whoever gets the money, they think it really is good. But you know what? It's not always good. In fact, in the PPP business, it was a huge mistake because it was taken advantage of. That's a wrap on the show today. Thank you for being here. We're going to wrap up the week tomorrow. Looking forward to a possible special guest, political guest. More about that as we start the show tomorrow morning. Have a great day. We'll see you on Friday, 9 to 11 Central Time. TNN Live. my pain with his fingers, singing my life with his words, killing me softly with his song, killing me softly with his song, telling my whole life with his words, killing me. With his song. One, two, three, uh. I heard he sang a good song. I heard he had a style. And so I came to see.
Bye. Bye.